0: Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Ian Head, and I'm here with my co-host, Aliyah Hussein. On The Activist Files, we feature stories of the activists, storytellers, and lawyers in the front lines fighting for social justice. Thanks to everyone who came out to our iTunes launch party last month. Check the photo blog on CCR's website to catch the highlights, and remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already. The Activist Files is now not only on iTunes and SoundCloud, but on Spotify. So follow us there as well.
1: On this episode, I interview artist and writer Molly Crabapple. I first met Molly at CCR in 2013 and have been fangirling it ever since. We talked about our new book, Brothers of the Gun, how to stay positive in the face of haters, what it's like to see her artwork at protests throughout the country, and so much more. But first, a roundup of some of the headlines here at CCR.
0: This week, CCR asked a federal judge to find the indefinite and potentially lifetime detention of Guantanamo prisoners unlawful. The petitioners in this case have been detained without charges for over a decade. Together with co-counsel, we asked the court to order their release. The Trump administration has made it clear it does not intend to let anyone out of Guantanamo regardless of the circumstances, including those previously cleared for transfer. There are currently 40 men left stranded at Guantanamo. But instead of shutting down this lawless prison, Trump has vowed to fill it back up and for reasons based solely on anti-Muslim racism. That's why we need the courts to act.
1: In June, we worked with Yale Law School and members of the Yemeni-American community to launch a new report, Window Dressing the Muslim Ban, Reports of Waivers and Mass Denials from Yemeni-American Families Stuck in Limbo. We launched the report with a rally and press conference. Yemen is one of the countries on Trump's Muslim ban, and through interviews with Yemenis stranded in Djibouti and their family members in the U.S., the report shows the devastating human impact of the ban, and that the so-called waiver process is really a sham. The Supreme Court decision came down just a few days later, and the justices upheld the Muslim ban. There were two important dissents, and Justice Breyer even cited our report in his opinion. Following the decision, CCR and Muslim advocates filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, demanding documents from federal agencies related to the purported waiver scheme. Visit our website to read the report and learn more about what we're doing to challenge Trump's Muslim ban.
0: On June 28th, we filed a class action against the city of Buffalo, New York for unconstitutional and racially discriminatory traffic checkpoints and ticketing practices. Nearly all of the checkpoints were in Black and Latinx communities. The city used the checkpoints and traffic violations to make money, and revenue went up a staggering 92% after the checkpoints were implemented. Officers even issued multiple tickets for a single violation. One class member received four tickets for having tinted windows, one ticket for each window. CCR staff attorney Darius Charney sums the case up well, saying Buffalo should not be attempting to balance its budget on the backs of Black and Latinx people.
1: And here's one last pitch for any of our listeners headed to Netroots Nation in New Orleans from August 2nd to 4th. Look for us. We have two great panels, one on the criminalization of Black protests and speech, and another one on the Bayou Bridge pipeline in Louisiana. Plus, we hope to get some good material for a future episode of the Activist Files while we're down there. If you're there, come say hi. I'm Malia Hussein, and I'm here with Molly Crabapple. Molly, welcome back to CCR's office. Oh man, I'm so happy to be here. So, Molly, you're a writer, artist, reporter, and I've even heard the title "guerrilla activist." Is there any one label you feel best describes you right now?
2: I don't know. I just I make pictures and I make words, and that's kind of it, I suppose. I um, I've never been so good at staying in boxes. It's probably a strength and a weakness on my part.
1: You've recently come out with your second book, Brothers of the Gun, A Memoir of the Syrian War, in collaboration with Syrian war journalist Marwan Hasham. I've started reading the book. I'm only about 30 pages in, but it's great so far. Um, can you tell our listeners more about the book and the process of writing it with Marwan?
2: Oh, man. So uh, Brothers of the Gun is probably the hardest and most precious project I've ever been involved in. I got to know Marwan in 2013 when I had just started covering Syria on Twitter. And there was this small community of people. Some were like Syrians uh, who were inside the country. Some were uh, analysts and journalists outside of it. And we'd all talk about Syria and Marwan was one of them. And at first I got to know him as a source because he was inside Raqqa and he would give me uh, information about the ISIS occupation. But after a while, and while I was studying Arabic, especially, I got to be pretty close friends with him. And one day I asked him, I said, Marwan, do you have any photos on your phone? Just sort of photos we'd all have. And he's like, I don't, but I could take you some. And I was like, Marwan, that's very, very dangerous. Isn't that to take some photos under ISIS? You know, you could get killed. And he's like, no, 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 I I know how to do it. And of course, then he risked his neck to take the most, I mean, badass journalistic photos ever that were in direct defiance of all of uh, the ISIS propaganda of the time. And he gave these to me and I drew from them. When we published this collaboration on Vanity Fair, which was uh, my drawings and captions that he wrote, it was probably one of the most successful pieces I had done. And it came out just days after uh, the US began bombing Raqqa. Marwan actually broke the news of America's bombing of Raqqa on Twitter. And after that, we decided to repeat the collaboration in ISIS-occupied Mosul and in rebel-held East Aleppo doing these, we wanted to create work that defied all of the cliches about what Syria was, about what the war was, about what Marwan's country was, and the sort of people that were in it. We wanted to show Marwan's city and Marwan's neighbors' people as he knew them. And after that, after we released the third of these, we came up with this idea to do something bigger. We wanted to do something that was More than just one of these articles on the internet that would scroll past and disappear, we wanted to do a book. Brothers of the Gun is Marwan's uh, memoir that I co-wrote with him. Uh, We co-wrote it as equals. It's about uh, Syria, it's about the revolution, the war, the ISIS occupation, uh, the start of the American bombing campaign that would eventually destroy 90% of Roqqa and that would kill thousands of civilians. But it's also um, Marwan's meditation on violence, and exile, and home, and what these things mean. Marwan is someone with an insane literary background. He's an an English literature graduate from one of the best universities in his country. He's read all of those modernistic classics that I can't get through. Uh, He translated Waiting for Godot into Arabic for fun. And he took the parts that I wrote, and he was like, no, 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 with the simplistic timeline. No, 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 with the Syria 101 stuff. No, we're going to make literature. And I uh, took the parts that he wrote and I said, Marwan, Americans don't know anything about the Middle East. You have to make this clearer for them or else they won't get stuff. And through this collaboration of writing and rewriting and rewriting each other, we um, made a text that is almost like both of our child, you know. And with the art, it was something equal to that. I mean, I did 82 illustrations, which is the amount of work that Goya did for the disasters of war. And each of these illustrations, Marwan completely art-directed them. He compared it to me downloading his memories. I would uh, interview him, he would pose, I would sketch him, I would sketch uh, from his memories, he would edit my sketches, he would sketch, we'd talk and we'd talk and we'd talk. And through this process, we created a book where I don't think that there's a single sentence nor a single line I drew in ink that isn't both of ours.
1: So I attended a book talk that you did at the Brooklyn Library, um, I think right around the time of the book launch, and there's a beautiful exhibit up. I think it's still up at the Brooklyn Library, which is some of your illustrations and uh, words from the book. Can you talk about what it was like
2: to sort of see that work alive in a place like the Brooklyn Library? One of the coolest things was that the Brooklyn Library, they covered the side of their balcony with a massive reproduction. It was like 40 feet, I think, of some of these pictures that I did. I would do these drawings in the book that I mean, so they were like these hyper detailed crowd scenes, and to do stuff like this, I would, um, I'd look at citizen video that was online that's all like blurry it's someone running, you can barely see what's going on in it, and I would make like a hundred freeze frames from it, and then I would print all those out, I'd lay it out, I'd make a panorama, and then I would sketch like these big crowd scenes, and the originals are like, what are they? Maybe. 30 inches wide but to see them blown up like that 40 feet oh my god it was it was the coolest thing ever and also I mean just to see all of the work together like that I mean I live in a New York apartment it's a pretty big apartment for New York but it's certainly not big enough to lay out 80 drawings
1: when describing the power of illustration versus photographs you once said that sometimes photos don't capture the dignity of people can you talk more
2: about what you mean by that This is something that's especially relevant for photos of war. There are so many uh, images we're exposed to from the Middle East that show, you know, people dead and bombings, that show ruined cities, that show some of the worst things that humans are capable of doing to each other. And these images are very, very important. These images prove war crimes. These images can be brought before the International Criminal Court. They can mobilize public opinion. I have all the respect in me for the photojournalists and the citizen journalists that take them. However, when all Americans see of the Middle East is pictures of broken bodies and broken people, it's easy for Americans to think that the Middle East is a place that was always at war and will always be at war, a place that has no beauty, no culture, no families, no happy days. That's just war. And that is a belief that can lead Americans to being okay with causing more war in the Middle East and dropping more bombs on it. Because if the Middle East was always bombed out wreck, then what does it matter what the U.S. does there later, right? So one of the things that I always sought to do with my work, because my work is not going to be used to prove any war crimes, right? It's not going to be brought before the criminal court. One of the things that I always sought to do was instead to capture uh, people's uh, dignity and their nuance and their humanity, and while there are a few pictures in Brothers of the Gun that show uh, violence, uh, one is a picture that I based on these films that the security services would make of themselves torturing people, later upload to the internet. I mean, there, there are those pictures. But there are a lot more pictures that uh, just show people uh, living, even sometimes living under the worst of circumstances, but living.
1: I think we first met when you um, had published a few pieces on Guantanamo, and I think, um, for me at least, it was really incredible to see how you were able to humanize some of the stories of Guantanamo, which is a big challenge for advocates um, like myself and others. You know, it's rare that I get to sit down with someone else, also a non-lawyer, who's been to Guantanamo, so I have to ask, uh, what was the most striking thing you remember from those trips, maybe the weirdest or the
2: most unexpected? Going into the Guantanamo Hospital, where they had all of these extremely wholesome uh, doctors and nurses who all had pseudonyms that were taken from Shakespeare because they would choose a theme every year. So it was like Dr. Mercutio and Nurse Juliet, who in their very wholesome Midwestern accents were showing us a force-feeding chair that people were shackled to and that people would have a tube uh, snake down their nose into their stomach and they'd have a can of ensure pump through the tube and these very nice pleasant wholesome people were refusing to call it force feeding they're calling it e-feeding and we couldn't draw their nice wholesome pleasant faces because that was censored I drew like these blank smiley face masks and I was just thinking as I was standing there I was like this is where Americans proclivity to be nice smacks right into their inability to be good
1: so you've uh, through your work you've brought attention to the stories of sex workers, prisoners at Guantanamo, the war on drugs, Occupy Wall Street, Palestine, solitary confinement, and most recently the Syrian war, to name just a few. Uh, how do you choose
2: projects, or rather, how do projects choose you? I think projects they come to me. I mean, I to give you an example of this book, I just met a really extraordinary human and writer who later became one of my best friends and. We wanted to work on something together. If it wasn't for Marwan, I never would have done a book on Syria, but I just had this opportunity to collaborate with him and I had an opportunity to create art with him. And I think a lot of my projects, they're like that. It's like there'll be someone who comes to me, there'll be someone who who tells me a story, I'll hear about something that uh, just doesn't seem right, and then I'll kind of follow it. And I think I've always been drawn specifically to stories of very smart people who are fighters, who are facing some sort of injustice on the part of the world. I have not been necessarily drawn to stories of telling straight victims, and I often feel that sympathy and pity have a very corrosive effect. I'm much more interested in telling the stories of um, humans with agency, and and that human can be a prisoner who's in long-term solitary confinement who decides to become a whistleblower. It could be a, a sex worker who's challenging her unjust arrest. It could be a South Asian man who's a construction worker in the United Arab Emirates who is um, challenging the incredible uh, racism of that society that would confine him to just being kind of like a machine. But those have always been typically the type of stories uh, that I've been interested in telling uh, injustice and people who fight it.
1: So some people would say that your work is of controversial subjects. Uh, have you ever gotten pushback on some of your projects or trouble trouble publishing or that really brought
2: out um, haters? Oh, my God, I've had pushbacks on every single project I've done. I I think the most contentious um, issue that I've ever, ever done work on is uh, Syria, though it, that is followed uh, by I recently published a piece on Afrin, which is a city that's predominantly Kurdish in northern Syria that Turkey invaded, and then also the pieces I did on Palestine, Uh, When you uh, write about Turkey, Syria, or Palestine, you're not only facing uh, the usual uh, jerks and misogynists and idiots online, right? You're facing state-funded trolls. And Israel has a department of people uh, who do something called Hasbara, which is essentially uh, propagandizing and trolling on social media. Turkey has a much less sophisticated but much more uh, virulent and rape-threat-filled department that does the same thing. And... Russia also has a lot of um, people who are, you know, either paid by Russian-owned media channels or who are, um, yeah, who, or who are bots that make some of the most horrific, horrific accusations against people. Um, I mean, I've been accused of uh, by that specific group. I've been accused of being CIA. My boyfriend, who is a caricature artist, was accused of being military intelligence. Uh, I was accused of being an ISIS sympathizer and a jihadi and an ISIS bride. And I mean, I think definitely the most horrific stuff I've gotten has been by pro-Assad people when I wrote about Syria and everything else I've gotten, including the many, many, many uh, pro-Israeli people that said that I ought to be beheaded because I had betrayed Judaism or whatever. Even that was like much less than the stuff that I got about Syria.
1: What are some of the success stories of some of your projects or artwork or things you didn't anticipate that turned out um, really well?
2: I think the most successful in terms of impact uh, article I've ever done, it wasn't one that I expected. It was an article I wrote about my own abortion, uh, which I wrote about four years ago. I got such reaction from that, such positive reaction. That was an article I was expecting to have every single Christian religious fundamentalist call me a baby killer and threaten to kill me. And I got a little of that, and, but mostly what I got was I got uh, letters from women who had had abortions, and some of these women they uh, were pe- they were older women that had had abortions back when it was illegal in America. Some of them were um, the children of uh, women who had had abortions back when it was illegal, who said that it helped their mothers deal with the trauma of having to have you know, a, you know when abortion is illegal, it becomes a very painful and dangerous and sometimes organized crime linked medical procedure and very traumatic, needlessly. I, women who um, were from uh, Northern Ireland who had to get abortions in uh, England, and just women who had had um, all sorts of experiences with it, uh, experiences that were, I don't want to say good because surgery is never fun, but that were, you know, things that definitely helped their life and they're very grateful to have access to, and women who had had um, experiences that were, you know, bad medical procedures as well. But all women who had had um, who had been actually helped by my article and who um, found that it um, either gave them sort of, some sort of healing or some sort of solace or uh, just some sort of like self-confidence to say, yes, this was totally the right choice. I'm not sorry whatsoever. So that was, I think, probably the article if I had to like, measure objective good an article uh, did in the world. So you
1: cover such important and often heavy topics. Uh, how do you bring lightness, humor positivity into your life? And what kind of keeps you going?
2: It's a really good question. I I love studying Arabic. I am a big, big nerd. I love Arabic novels. I love Arabic short stories. I study that language every day and it gives me such joy because it's so beautiful and it's also so difficult. I think it might exhaust my brain the same way that running can, or like, you know, boxing might exhaust your body. I have tons of beautiful friends. I like to travel, I like Istanbul and all the street cats, whenever I'm there I spoil all of those cats, they're so cute. Um, I I don't know, I guess I just like my beautiful sunny apartment and all of my books and just lying around drinking black coffee and reading big books and then drinking whiskey with friends all night. That sounds amazing. So I know that on your book
1: tour, some of your events, um, Marwan wasn't able to attend, including the ones in the U.S. What was it like doing press for a collaboration and not always having his voice be a part of that?
2: Oh, my God, it sucked. It was, it was tragic. I, it's so crap, to be honest. I mean, you know, this is his story. And we only were able to do one event that he was actually physically at in person, which was in Istanbul, which was awesome. And I was so grateful to do that. And um he Skyped in to a lot of other events. I think he Skyped into four of the of the events. And we tried to like have video of him doing other readings. But no, it sucked. It's awful. And the reason that he couldn't come to America, it's actually the policies of three different governments. It wasn't just America. The Syrian regime doesn't give passports to people it doesn't like. And especially there's many, many, many young men, uh, Marwan in- included in this, who uh, refused to do their military service because they didn't want to kill people. And these people are finding it uh, nearly impossible to uh, get passports from the regime. Now, if he was able to get a passport in some magic way, Turkey isn't giving residency to many Syrians. So by leaving Turkey, he might risk being... In a situation uh, like this one particular Syrian marketing manager in Malaysia finds himself in, which is that this guy is trapped in an airport and has been for 90 days now because countries won't take in Syrians. But let's say he was able to somehow get this passport and he's somehow able to get Turkey to give residency you know, so he could go back. Uh, then there's also the matter of getting a visa from America. I had a friend, she is Syrian, but she is living in Canada where she has asylum. She is a trans woman. She is an LGBT activist. And she applied for a visa to speak at a conference at Rutgers for LGBT issues. She paid $600 to apply. And she was turned down. And they don't give you the $600 back. And what happens, I think, for a lot of people is you just look at all of these layers of bureaucracy and also the thousands and thousands of dollars that you have to pay in fees and you start thinking like do I want to do this? Is this like how I want to devote all of my time to? And of course you know obviously being um, a writer you're in a better situation, I mean, not being a writer but being a writer with a major book deal with an American press like Random House you're in a better situation than just like an average person but it's really really hard and I've always been an anti-borders person, but uh, doing this collaboration in particular, it gave me a very personal view of the cruelty and absurdity and idiocy of borders and what a horrible thing it is to divide people up based on what side of an imaginary line they're born on.
1: You contributed these amazing illustrations to posters that Amplifier Art um, printed out for the No Muslim Ban Ever um, rally outside of um, the White House. And, and the broader coalition has been using those images um, around the work challenging Trump's Muslim ban. What is it like to see um, your artwork on the streets?
2: Oh, it's so cool, especially so those images. I drew my friends for those. I drew my friend Yamna, I drew my friend Oz. And, I would be sending them photos, and Oz would be so happy. He'd be like, there I am in front of Trump Tower saying, fuck you, Trump. You know, it's it's just, it's cool. And I, my friends are awesome. And so I always sometimes was a little bit critical of some of the um, anti-Islamophobia images. Not because they weren't, like, super well-meaning and awesome. But I was like, must you make people so cutesy and harmless to show that they deserve basic human rights? I mean, like, don't people deserve, like, not to be attacked on the street or not to be banned from a country? Just because they're human, like, do they actually, like, do you have to, I don't know, it seemed like almost dehumanizing how saccharine some of them were. And I was like, I just want to draw my cool friends, you know? And I was there in in
1: D.C. holding up those signs. That was really exciting. So your illustrations are in the new documentary, The Feeling of Being Watched, a film by journalist Asiya Bandui about the FBI surveillance of her Arab-American neighborhood in Chicago. What was it like to do courtroom sketches
2: for that project? I've done a lot of courtroom sketches. I've done courtroom sketches for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, pre trial hearings, done stuff for Chelsea Manning, Jeremy Hammond, uh, also just times in like misdemeanor courts. I-, I even did the Shkreli, the Martin Shkreli thing. I drew his horrible little smirk way too many times. It was different to do that one because those hearings weren't something where it was a criminal trial, right, with a defendant. Instead, it was Asia and her lawyer. Trying to uh, get the government to release documents. And the government didn't even physically send a lawyer. They just had a black box that was emitting bureaucratic nonsense and excuses. But what was really cool about that was that Asia, her whole community, came out and supported. And so I not only was drawing this very sterile machine that represented the state surveillance, but I was also drawing all of these beautiful uh, women. Uh, from her neighborhood who were coming and who are supporting this film and who are supporting her project. So on one hand, there's like a lot of love there. And on the other hand, there is a government machine making excuses.
1: And I think that's a great example of the intersection of art and law and precisely how art and other creative endeavors can bring kind of the work of lawyers, work of CCR to life in different ways. So I just want to take a moment to kind of uplift some of the video collaborations you've done, um, and which some of our listeners might be familiar with. Um, so you worked with Jay Z and Dream Hampton on a video capturing the War on Drugs, um, a film narrated by Brian Stevenson connecting the legacy of slavery to mass incarceration, and trans history narrated by Laverne Cox. Um, it's pretty incredible that they're able to capture so much information in such a short amount
2: of time. So what does the process look like
1: for those kind of animated films?
2: All of those films are collaborations that I do with two of my best friends, Kim Bookbinder, who's a very talented musician and who's also the writer on many of those projects and the producer, and Jim Batt, who is her partner, who's director. Those films, we have a method. Our it is We have it down like a military operation. I think we've done, like, we're going on our 20th now. First, we storyboard out. Every single scene, and the storyboards have to be so perfect because you can't change anything. Then we have a rig that's set up over my drafting table that has video cameras shooting down. And then over the course of several nights, uh, each shoot is around 10 hours maybe. So over the course of about 20 or 30 hours of shooting, I, from start to finish, draw everything in the storyboard and a very specific order. I'd have to draw, like, leaning really far back. I could barely see the canvas sometimes because I don't want the top of my head in it. And I can't mess up, because if I mess up, we have to start the whole thing over again, and you don't want to lose 30 hours of work. Then, from this footage, Jim and Kim meticulously, meticulously edit it so that it perfectly syncs up to uh, the words of whoever the narrator is, uh, Laverne Cox, for instance, reading the script that Kim works on. And about two months later, we have these videos that explain pretty grim and complicated things, like how the bail industry fucks over poor people, for instance, but that explains it in a way that's very accessible. And something I'm really honored by is a lot of organizers have told me that those videos are uh, good teaching tools.
1: That's great. Awesome. So is there um, anything else you want to share with the Activist Files
2: listeners? Um, I don't know. Buy my book, uh, Buy Brothers <laughs> of the Gun. We worked on it for three years. It's like blood, sweat, tears, and literal like life force. You can buy it at your local independent bookstore.
0: Yeah, I just need you to say the real AF.
1: The real AF.
0: Hey, it's Ian, and we're here with Anderson Tavares, IT associate at CCR. Thanks for coming down.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Go for it. All right. Would you rather never speak again or never stop talking?
3: Never stop talking. I mean, I don't see a reason why I should stop (laughs) speaking.
0: (laughs) Would you rather have a bit role in a rom com or in an action film?
3: Uh, well, I've been in movies for like 15 seconds, so it can't get worse than that. I'll do uh, an action uh, movie.
1: What kind of movies have you been in for 15 seconds?
3: So, um, I used to work at a barbershop, and one of my friends is a um, director. And he needed a barbershop scene. And he needed a good barber, and he also needed a good actor. So, he knew that, that somewhere in me there's a, some artist. And he asked me about it, and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll speak to my manager. <laughs> Let's do it in here. So the movie, it's, it's called, um, and it's a very good movie, Full Circle. It used to be on Netflix, so I used to be famous for quite a while. So, Wow.
0: All right, then. That's right, what
1: they then. say, 15 seconds of fame,
0: right? Yeah. And, uh, and you're also a legit barber.
3: I am a legit, really, extremely awesome, very good barber.
0: You still doing that at all?
3: Uh, I do, um, but just family members and close friends and my old, good customers. Nice. All right.
0: All right, well, I know you like video games.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: Would you rather play a video game or be in a video game?
3: It would be nice to be in one, but um, I enjoy playing them, so I'll go with playing a video game.
1: What kind? Like, what's your favorite kind? I have
3: two shooters. Play Call of Duty a lot, and then RPGs, which is like where you get to play role somebody. Um, Witcher Three is one of my favorites of all time. So I do advise if you play video games to to get it. It's really good. It's gonna change the way you think about video games.
1: But if you were in one of those video games, Witcher Three.
3: Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be in the Witcher.
0: Would you rather make a phone call or send a text?
3: Uh, Send a text. It's quick and simple. Right, straight to the point. When you're calling people, since people don't call each other anymore, you have to go through, like, a sequence of, hey, how are you, how's life, <laughs> and all of that. But when you send a text, you send the text straight up, this is all I need.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you rather be on a survival reality show or a dating game show?
3: If I was single, I would take a dating game show, but I'm I'm engaged, so I'll do the survival just because of the thrill. What,
1: what would be the survival technique that you brought to that
3: show? Uh, um, I'm very creative, so I'll probably be leeching off everybody else. <laughs> <laughs>
0: would you rather take someone visiting New York City to Queens or the Bronx?
3: I think if it's an enemy, I'll take him to the Bronx. Somebody I don't like. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'll, I'll choose Queens. I'll take somebody to Queens instead of the Bronx.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. That was great.